So again, welcome and thank you for coming to this celebratory event with Scottish Makar Jackie Kay, Letbury Poetry Festival's poet in residence, Safa Kunyal, and Major Jackson, who I guess had the longest journey to be here today. This is also a good moment to thank the Arts Council for their sponsoring of this festival and as we're all eager to listen to the poetry, I'll keep this intro really brief. I had a chat this morning with Neil Astley from Blood X Books about the anthology, which I was supposed to wave around, but Jackie has it, so maybe Jackie can do a quick wave with the anthology. <laughs> you can see it there. <laughs> it's called The Mighty Stream, and as you read, it's in celebration of Martin Luther King, but there's more to that project. Um, it's a celebration of Martin Luther King's visit to Newcastle in November 1967 when he was awarded an honorary doctorate of law by the University of Newcastle, the only English university to do so before Martin Luther King was assassinated in April 1968. So 50 years after Dr. King's inspiring speech at Newcastle, the university's professor of poetry and Scottish Macau, Jackie Kay, and Carolyn Fauchet, the director of the Lannan Center for Poetics and Social Practice at Georgetown University, Washington, collaborated with Blood X, with Neil, to publish this anthology of poems as a tribute to the memory of Martin Luther King and to his continuing inspiration. So let's be inspired by Jackie Kay, Major Jackson, and Safar Kunyal, who will read and then later discuss poems from the anthology that addresses the urgent issues of racism, poverty, and war that Dr. King already defined back in 1967. So let's give a warm welcome to our poets. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Gosh, it's getting, um, it's getting a regular thing being up here. <laughs> a girl could get used to things. <laughs> uh, yes, this is a third, third, third event here last night, this morning, and now I was saying I could have just slept on the stage last night. People could have brought me things. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really, really, really utterly wonderful to be in in Ledbury. What a life-giving place Ledbury is. It just fills your heart with joy and lifts your spirit. It's just one of these places. Um, my son, Matthew, when he was very little, he said to me, he's now nearly 30, tell me I don't look old enough. <laughs> but um, he, he said to me when he was little, Mum, why are you always going to poetry? He thought poetry was a place. <laughs> you got on a train or a plane or a bus and you got off at this place called Poetry, and um, Ledbury's this place called Poetry, Lesbury, is that. It's um, just such, a, such a, a song and welcoming place, and over the years, coming back and forth uh, to Ledbury, it's just every single time, it just fills you with, with joy. I might even move in <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. The last time I was here, I was here with my, with my mum and dad and my dog, my dog liked Ledbury too. <laughs> so, today we're going to be reading from this anthology, The Mighty Stream, uh, edited by myself and Carolyn Forche. And it's a really various, diverse and, and rich um, anthology. And it was a real pleasure to edit, particularly in these times, it seemed ever more important that we should find a conversation to be had between poets across the Atlantic in these, in these times um, of 
Trump and Brexit and all the rest of it. And Martin Luther King, if you watch, you can actually go on to YouTube and watch that speech that he gave in, at Newcastle University. Um, it's extraordinarily um, prescient. In, in some ways, it's depressing how, how up-to-date it is, how little it's changed. In his day, we kind of imagined that we might fight racism, that it was a battle that could be perhaps fought and won. And, um, and, and, and so having this, this book with all of the various... Some poems address Martin Luther King directly or address segregation or, or, or the Rosa Parks or the bus. And some poems address protest as a concept more obliquely. And so we'll be talking when, when we, when we um, get a chance to talk up here. I'll be talking with, um, with Major and with Zaf um, about writing political poems. Somebody in the audience earlier um, yesterday said to me, because I, I was telling a story about my mum's Glasgow double, where she'll say, I'm not hungry, hungry, but I'm hungry. I'm not tired, tired, but I'm tired. And uh, somebody asked a question and said, you're not political, political, but you're political, <laughs> which was just a fantastic question. So we'll be talking about that and, and how, how, as a writer, we take the challenge of, of, of politics and still, I suppose, um, have, the, have the integrity of the poem there. So I'm just going to read a few poems um, from, from here. And, and this first one is by James Berry, who... As you might, might or might not know, James Berry, he, he died not that long ago, but he was a wonderful, um, wonderful poet, one of the first ever um, black poets that I came across, and so he, he meant a lot. This is In God's Greatest Country, and all the poems that I've picked to read um, are all concerned buses in some way or another. I thought, we, I thought we'd have some sort of wee theme going on. In God's Greatest Country, 1945. In this Lake Ochebe land of hibiscus, oranges and flamingos, grass could deceive it was sugarcane. New like a city boy in deep woods, I stood inside the back of the bus, watching empty seats in front marked whites only. My friend sat as any man sits in a vacant public seat and the sun was attacked. Horns grew in faces and the ladies squirmed she yelled, her person's purity is blotted, a black violates her side. Passions break the bus, the driver stood correctly, legally, holding unholstered gun, coolly, like a Bible, to convert a black. I'm British, my friend said, but under steel of eyes there was a cooler confidence, niggers are just niggers. We stepped down between fields of nodding sugar cane, pop-eyed at the back of the bus with sheep-caged faces. The black Americans watched us go across the country road. In the free sunlight, satisfying the other tribe, we walked into the little segregated town of Belglade, Florida. I think that's the first time I've ever said that word. <laughs> to give me a bit of a shock to say. <laughs> anyway, I'm traveling as we are. This is also James Berry. They hadn't launched their breathing. They were still cocooned in the flame of their tongues. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, 
James Baldwin, etc. My rage unignited, I sat enclosed underground, British among Britons, only there in the nearby London train going to work. Look, mummy, look, a nigger. Mummy, niggers can sit. Mummy, look. She didn't glance once. She wouldn't expose a wink. She withdrew, hooded skillfully, till her Southern American voice trailed a sigh. So they can, Tim, so they can. I knew the flight of my mind. My demeaning stressed her excellence as I'd known it in her southern U.S. town. But this is Europe, mummy. How come niggers live here too? Tim and Sally Jane, when you get home, ask your daddy. You ask your daddy. Here, loaded together, we mattered much to each other, our tomorrow and yesterday, now, stirring each other without a word or glance reciprocated. An aching hatred left the train with me. All day suspicions spurred me. I spoke hastily. Retaliation wrestled me. I think I've left my little sheet of, of notes there on the table, uh, on the chair, have I? Is there a little piece of, no. Very annoying. Must have left it in the, no, it's not in the bag. It was inside the book, but it's a little, no. Never mind, I'll just look it, look it up. I must have left it where I left the book. <clears throat> so I'm going to read um, a first, the first part of a, a long poem by Fred Degar, and it's called Call and Response, and it's, it's really an extraordinary poem um, because you have to try and think what, who the voice is in the poem and what it's what it's doing and um, I can't read the whole poem because it, I would actually be here for 20 minutes or something but I'll read, I'll read um, this first part and Fred Degar is has also been in Ledbury I don't know if many of you know his work or remember him but he's from Guyana and um, so I'll read this wonderful poem he read it when we had the event in Newcastle he read the entire poem when I was with the major in Newcastle and it was an extraordinary experience just to hear the whole thing. Call and response. Dear Martin, I wish you had never been found. Telescope and direction, aim, hammer, grudge, velocity and malice sent me your bloodhound. As I burned through space, left my own sound. In my wake, parted strands from my sight, dodged time split particles, my hummingbird instant for your slow finger wet and mouth test of falling. Swept aside by speed inside your constant, I knew when I would end up, what my blunt instrument must do to your routine, more calling than career, to that bigger dream you coined, robbed of you, grabbed by me, us joined. I knew others would follow you in my name for no other reason than that my trade is grief. I bear harm, win nothing, end warmth, halt fame. I flew to you knowing violence would be blamed, not me. I saw all the things you did, your beliefs, and so much more that you planned to do and say. All the congregations and demonstrations headed by you, all eyes on you, 
for your next word, prayer, song, and lift of everybody up and into a new day, some place where words take you, where dread cannot enter, nor what I bring to put an end to all your good. Always it is me they send. Just read those, those two. <sighs> Give me a little shiver reading that, that poem. Some poems have the shiver factor. <laughs> it's the way to judge whether a poem moves you or not, whether it has the shiver factor. So the, the, um, the last poem that I'm going to read before I hand over to, to Zaf, Zaf Erkuniel, who's, who's your wonderful uh, writer in residence and was here for 10 days with you. You're so lucky um, to have him. His new book, Us, has just been published by Faber and it's going to be win all the prizes, I say. I predict it now, but it's um, really an astonishing, an astonishing book and he's a wonderful writer, so I'm, I'm really happy um, that, that he's here. So I will finish for now um, with Rosa. Actually, first of all, I'll read because uh, another poem by Rita, Freedom Ride. As if after High Street and the left turn onto exchange, the view could veer onto someplace fresh, Curacuo, or a mosque adrift on a milk-fed pond. But there's just more cloud cover and germy air condensing on the tinted glass and the little houses with their fearful patches of yard rushing into flames. Pull the cord a stop too soon and you'll find yourself walking a gauntlet of stairs. Daydream and you'll wake up in the stale dark of a cinema, Dallas playing its mistake over and over until even that sad reel won't stay stuck. There's still Bobby and Malcolm and Memphis at every corner, the same scorch brick darkened windows. Make no mistake, there's fire back where you come from too. Pick any stop. You can ride into the afternoon singing with strangers or rush home to the Scots you've been pouring all day. But where you sit is where you'll be when the fire hits. Rosa. How she sat there, the right... How she... Sorry, I'll begin that again. How she sat there, the time right inside a place so wrong it was ready. That trim name with its dream of a bench to rest on, her sensible coat. Doing nothing was the doing, the clean flame of her gaze carved by a camera flash. How she stood up when they bent down to retrieve her purse, that courtesy. So thank you very much. And I just ask you um, to, to welcome onto the stage Zafir Kuneel. And after Zafir, you're going to have the enormous pleasure of hearing the fantastic Major Jackson. He's, he's, he's got the most wonderful, rich, mellifious voice that, that you ever heard. He's arrived in Ledbury, smiling still, even though his luggage has been lost. He assures me he's perfectly clean. <laughs>
<laughs> you can always get a toothbrush in Ledbury. <laughs> and, and he's a really, really wonderful poet that actually managed to, manages to do that extraordinary thing, I think, which is to make a political poem sing and have its own integrity. He's really an astonishing poet. So you're in for a treat um, to, uh, to hear these, these two really wonderful poets. And I don't know if you've actually heard each other yet, but yeah. you're both in for a treat yeah. too. Please welcome Zafir Kunil and Major Jackson. Thanks so much, Jackie. It's, it's lovely to be here and to read at this event and to be part of this great anthology. I'm so, so proud to be in it. And um, yeah, you, you, I picked up a phrase from the poem you read from Fred Degar, uh, Us Joined. And I hope I heard that right, but yeah, that, that, that really felt resonant for me. When I was a child, I, I grew up in, um, I, I suppose you, you call it a mixed-raced fa family. My mum my, my was white, English. My, my father was born, born and brought up in, in Kashmir. And they looked very different. And I always felt this, uh, this kind of longing to feel that we were somehow joined. And this concept of us kind of meant something, both as a nation and also just on a very individual level, that somehow my household was even uh, an us that was legitimate. Um, so this poem, Us, um, looks at this small word that holds wide waters. Us. If you ask me, us takes in undulations. Each wave in the sea, all insides compressed, as if from one coast you could reach out to the next, and maybe it's a Midlands thing, but when I was young, us equally meant me, says the one. Or you, tell us where you're from. And the way football fans share one fate, I, being one, am Liverpool, no less. <laughs> Cresting the Mexican wave of we and us. A shore-like state, two places at once. God knows what's in it. And at opposite ends, my heart sunk at separations of us. When it comes to us, colour me unsure. Something in me or it has failed the course. I'd love to think I could stretch to it, us. But the waves therein are too wide for words. I hope you get here where I'm coming from. I hope you're with me on this, between love and loss where I'd give myself away, stranded, as if the universe is a matter of one stress, us. I hope from here on I can say it, and though far-fetched, it won't be too far wrong. Um, and a, a poem I, I, I have in the anthology, which I'm very pleased that it's there, is Poppy, uh, which is a, in a way a war poem, and it's also a peace poem all, all at once, and the poppy is a very complicated symbol in this country. Um, it represents both war and peace in a way. It represents um, most of all memory, I think, and not letting go of memory. And it also represents, and it's uh, through human culture, it represents forgetting and how we forget things and how we want to forget things. And the poppy in its opiate form is all about escapism and running away from stuff. Um, and I think in a, in a way it's a symbol of poetry too and it, it, 
I suppose the poem employs repetition, which is something that I love about hearing Martin Luther King's speeches, particularly the famous I Have a Dream speech, and the way that word dream gets loaded and loaded and loaded with complexity, and, and by, at the end it feels like a real release. Um, and this is a very different piece of work, but, um, but yeah, it has the same spirit of poetry, I think. Poppy who crops up wherever ground is opened, broken. No, this is not enough. Who crops up where acidic ground is neutralized. In Belgium, blasted bones and rubble added their twist of lime, turning the disturbed earth red. No, this is not enough. Then, where seeds lay buried, dormant, those older than I am, catching light, can stir from their long sleep in time, like history, Raising a hand, a head. No, this is not enough. Remember, who's there in the first script on a Mesopotamian tablet, hull and gill, joy flower, a cuneiform cocktail, our earliest memory. Who begot war in China, was named by Arabs Abu el-Num, father of sleep, a bloody sign of love's martyrdom, gul elala, flower of red, in Persian and Urdu. Remember, beloved of Persephone, also found in the tomb like a watch worn on the wrist of Tutankhamun and on coins issued by Herod. No, this is not enough. You need more. Who crops up fringing the banks of Lethe after Troy, who bridges forgetfulness and memory, life and death, relief and pain who was loved by Coleridge, who wished that I could wrap up the view from my house in a pill of opium and send it to you to be seen, swallowed, whole again. No, this is not enough. Who is the minded flower Shakespeare partly saw in all the drowsy syrups of the world, a relief from grief that calls for more far-fetched relief? And as morphine, sent your sap through my mother's veins while she could still hear me, while life remained in those hands that first held me, first calmed my small, fevered brain. No, this is not enough. Whose pupil is a void, dilating with light, its first and last entry, a compound eye in whichever form, who sees the black dot of the beginning. Who's there on that date when all the ones meet, Looped in a wreath, year upon year, or poked through the eye of a buttonhole. There, I'm done. No, this is not enough. Then, mother, mother, last word of that bleeding wrecked soldier, as heard by the last Tommy, the last link to living memory, spoken for now, like the countless millions of mouthless dead, there in the underworld, the fallen, heavy head, the deaths we live with. Enough said. Remember, this is you. Wake up. You're summoned. No, this is not enough. Um, oh, thank you. Okay. Um, I think the other poem I, I have in the anthology is called... Um, uh, Spider Trees, Pakistan. And it's about bringing worlds together. Um, and it started off with seeing a, a photograph, I think it was on Facebook, uh, uh, of 
um, trees in Pakistan that had been covered in spider webs. It was when there was a flood in an area called Sindh, and these spiders were stranded in this tree, and beautiful pictures on National Geographic. And these things were very English, these looking. They reminded me of Miss Havisham's house. And, <laughs> and, um, and they also made me think of poetry and um, the way, I don't know, the way poetry holds time together. It seemed to trap time. And, but yet they were set in this far-off place, which was also part of me. And it made me think of gravity as well, how we hold our world together. And I was thinking of Einstein and all these things. And ridiculously, I tried to put all this into a kind of sonnet shape of 14 lines. Um, but actually, going back to Martin Luther King, I think another thing I love about his speeches and his, his life, really, is that he kind of everything is integrated. He, he has this desire underneath him to integrate and um, to get, get his words to come together, different registers of speech to come together. And people to come together, and the form of his words and what he was saying was was all kind of joined somehow through this um, big heart and kind of thoughtfulness. Spider trees, Pakistan. English mists in subcontinental sun. The ghostly veil at Miss Havisham's house. Think of that thought in the brain of John Donne, scrawling in that the world's contracted thus. Think of holding spells, catching up with time, the way snow floods the sky in slow suspension. Think, though it's a stretch, like shock-haired Einstein, wedding time and space through lacework tension. With floods in Sindh and their tenants long-stranded, these trees are veiled globes shrink-wrapped in silk. It's these photos that have me stretched, extended, glued to a web page since opening a link, racking my brain for lines to catch how they carry the gravities of home, worlds I can't marry. Thank you. Well, this is an extraordinary occasion. Um, I want to thank uh, Jackie Kay and Carolyn Forche for editing um, this um, anthology because I, I think if there's any poetry that we need to hear right now, and it's the poetry of decency, of resistance, of uh, witness, and um, that such a figure as Martin Luther King uh, become someone that we rally around with our language um, to have this conversation um, is truly extraordinary. So I want to thank you for uh, finding the occasion to bring poets both here um, as well as in the U.S. around uh, his life and um, um, political activism, which I feel is a, is a long tradition in uh, poetry, but not one that is frequently marked as important as, say, lyric poetry or epic poetry. Um, so the fight for human dignity goes on, as we know. It's, it's nonstop, and somehow uh, poetry uh, reminds us of that. I want to thank uh, Neil and Pamela also for, uh, and Blood Axe for also publishing 
uh, this book. There's not too many books that are centered around uh, uh, social and political justice. And this is definitely a book that I'll be returning to uh, with my students, um, but also just when I feel like I need a poem that's going to anchor me into um, uh, what matters and not poems that are trivial. Um, I'm going to read several poems, and I think if there's nothing else that um, that Martin, Martin Luther King's life kind of signifies, um, it's that of, I, I said that word, uh, human dignity. And that was the big fight for people to be seen, be seen for, um, for their humanity and their deep and rich humanity. The poetry that inspired me was poetry that early on as a college student that was written during those years, the 60s and 70s, by the likes of Nikki Giovanni and Amir Barak and Sonia Sanchez and Donnell Lee, now Haiki Matabuti, the poetry of Etheridge Knight, the poetry of Audrey Lord, the poetry of Langston Hughes, and, and the list can go on. Uh, the, that tradition of American poetry, what we find is that um, uh, the need to be seen, the need to bear witness, to the need to kind of fight against um, public portrayals that dehumanize. We never had post-civil rights. We never had a Truth and Reconciliation Act. We never had reparations. But the culture always carried that need to heal the wounds from years and years of oppression and not just slavery, um, and not just de not just segregation, but the uh, the treatment years and years and years afterwards. So I want to read some poems that kind of maybe highlight some of the struggles that we're dealing with right now. Um, one of them is, of course, police violence, and police violence isn't anything new, um, but it seems as though um, every kind of four or eight years we're talking about um, policing uh, people of color, whether it's stop and frisk um, or it's the shooting of unarmed, the shooting of unarmed men. Um, this is a poem called Ferguson, and I just want to acknowledge um, that this is, I'm not treating this, that event in Ferguson, Missouri uh, lightly, um, but it is an imagined moment. It's a prose poem. What struck me about it, despite the politics of race, what struck me about it was that here was a body that laid on the ground for four hours. Now, if you zoom out and go 30,000 30, feet up and look at that and think about it, um, that's an absurd moment that a dead body can just lay on the ground and people, and the police are there, cordoned off, and it just lays there. So I kind of work with that, and um, I just want to acknowledge that I take liberties with, with uh, that moment. Ferguson. Once there was a boy who thought it a noble idea to lie down in the middle of the street and sleep. For four hours, no one bothered him, but let him lay on the road as though he were an enchantment. This became newsworthy. And soon, helicopters hovered above, hosing his curled torso and thick legs, and spotlights televised the world over. 
foreign correspondents focused on the neighborhood and its relative poverty as recognized by the plethora of low-hanging jeans worn by shirtless men and loud music issuing from passing cars, which had the effect of drowning out everyone's already bottled up thoughts about the boy sleeping in the middle of the street. Others jumped in front of cameras, seizing an opportunity to be seen by their relatives on the other side of town because they had run out of minutes on prepaid cell phones. The roadkill in the neighborhood, and some on that very block, rodents, cats, and possums, feeling equal amounts of jealousy and futility, each begin to rise and return to their den holes, cursing the boys sleeping in the street beneath their breaths for his virtuosic performance of stillness and tribulation in the city. The drug-addicted men and women leaning into doorways like art installations were used to being ignored, but they too felt affronted by the boys sleeping in the street and folded their cardboard homes. For the first hour, he practiced not breathing. For 10 seconds, he would hold his breath, and then he practiced longer sets of minutes during the next three hours until he was able to stretch out his non-breathing for whole hunks at a time. When his breathing returned, it was so faint, his chest and shoulders barely moved. Infinitesimal amounts of life poured out of him, but no one noticed. The police cordoned off his body and after some time declared him dead because they had only seen black men lying prone on the street as corpses, but never as sleeping humans. The whole world, eager and hungry for Lazarus, moment watched and waited to see when he would awaken and rise to his feet, especially his neighbors with minutes remaining on cell phones who filmed and animatedly discoursed behind yellow tape the ecstasies and muted sorrows of watching a boy sleep in the middle of the street. Um, this is um, a poem in the anthology called uh, Stand Your Ground. And Stand Your Ground um, is the law that was passed in Florida um, around the time of George Zimmerman, who shot Trayvon Martin. And it pretty much is a law that says if you fear for your life, then that's legal grounds by which to use violent force. And, of course, what troubles me about that, of course, is that at the heart of that is fear. And fear of people of color in the U.S. has been cultivated for many, many years. Stand your ground. And I should say it's a golden shovel. My friend Terrence Hayes invented this form called the golden shovel based on a Gwendolyn Brooks called We Real Cool, Seven at the Golden Shovel. And what he did was he took that poem and on the right margin used her words and uh, encouraged a bunch of people to write a golden shovel. I did, and uh, I took her lines from her poem, Beverly Hills, Chicago. We do not want them to have less, but it is only natural that we should think we have not enough. And then I, you know, I, I just, I kind of tinker with poems maybe a little too much. So on the left side, I have words by Robert Hayden. Stand your ground. America, 
How often I have applauded your flagpoles. We as citizens struggle to find common ground, yet do much to damage the planks of your ark. Not a soft tune we make, glissando of the harmonized, we have a want problem, more of ourselves problem, us versus them in the great race to prosperity. In his introduction to metaphysics, Heidegger asks, why are there beings at all? We have, as guides, clansmen and eugenicists who proclaim all others as less. It is, I admit, the slapping of your ropes, tolling a perfect union. But is the measure of your worth a silent clang elsewhere? How is it a ripple also runs through me when your wind rises? Your cloth is nation, hauled down or half mass like a deferred dream. That an angry man can shoot a teenager is par, as we say. We iotas, deltas, crips, knights, new tribesmen, and new codes should in earnest put away our swords and talk shows. Think, our watermelons have so many seeds, and we, a galaxy in us, dissolve like supernovas. The mysteries we have, an unmitigated burning of sound and fury, not organism of one, but organs. America, I've had enough. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Major. Thank you, Zaf. Um, really wonderful readings and so much to, to try and, um, and discuss. I was interested when you talked about the boy sleeping in the street. When you introduced the poem, you said that you'd taken some liberties um, with that. And yet that poem is so powerful because we all know the re reality. It builds an extraordinary tension because mm -hmm. we know that he's, he's dead. So it's, it, it borrows from myth to give us back the boy, mm -hmm. in a sense. You return the boy to us by, by, um, by writing the poem in that way, by, by us being involved in, and invested in mm -hmm. him in that way. Did, how, did, how did that come to you and the, and the use of repetition that you, you, you do in, in the poem? Every, I don't know, however, however, I can't remember however many lines it is, mm -hmm. but returning to and repeating the boy sleeping in the street is such a powerful refrain. Mm -hmm. Well, part of the reason why I, I prefaced it is to just acknowledge that for a number of people who watch that body mm -hmm. on, on the news, um, that it was a moment of trauma. And I did not, in, in mentioning it, I did not want us to, um, to ignore that fact. And I didn't want anyone to think that my writing the poem um, was a, a, a kind of a light, unconsidered idea. And in fact, what I wanted to do was, of course, if you see a sleeping body, most of us who grew up on fairy tales think of uh, Sleeping Beauty. And so I wanted to kind of conflate that idea of an enchantment so that we could see how absurd uh, the idea of a body that is, that is dead um, is lying there. And yet, much like, um, much like the fairy tales, we can kind of take it in, mm -hmm. but there is that, that moment in which you realize uh, the absurdity of it. Mm -hmm. 
Because it, it seems to me that when you're writing a political poem, um, you tell me if this is right for you, Zaf, that, that you need to have the two, two things joined. You need to have some sort of some idea. You, in, that, in that poem, you have the, the idea of, of, of the fairy tale and the sheer trauma mm -hmm. of, of, of that um, of that happening in Ferguson and of that murder, really, um, state mm -hmm. state enforced murder. But you, you know, to write a poem about state enforced murder and it wouldn't be nearly as powerful as that. And and for for Yusuf, you often write poems where you'll find um, in the form itself a solution to something that it is that you're trying to that you're trying to address us mm. us as a great uh, example. And so was so was Poppy. And you also had the the refrain in Poppy, no. This is not enough. No, this is not enough. Which which gathers in power as you hear it again and again, because basically it feels as if you're you're saying, you know, what can we what can we do with this? What can we do with mm. with war? How can we write about it? Mm. Yes, and I, th I think with the, the the repetition that was great in, in your, your poem as well. I think the reason it's, it's it works so well that there is because it feels really kind of like the poem is making it come out. Just you know, it feels like the you know, or the the buried grief or something is making this thing come out. It doesn't feel like a a mere device or something, mm -hmm. you know. And it's like you were saying about the your your memory of fairy tales and Sleeping Beauty, and somehow that managed to come out, you mm -hmm. know, in this, which which actually throws a whole new light and in a way restores humanity. Yeah. And you know, and some and it's that distance that opens up the closeness somehow, you know, mm -hmm. and um, and. And yeah, with, with, with I suppose with Martin Luther King's speeches, like the uh, uh, people often talk about how good he was at rhetoric, but I actually think that his life was just like that, and, and the speeches just represented that somehow. Mm -hmm. he, he somehow these contradictions that he was living with somehow found their voice in in his words. It wasn't that he was he was kind of artificially imposing some kind of. Um, rhetoric on the situation or, or repeated imagery. Mm -hmm. This imagery is repeating in his consciousness and, mm -hmm. and that's how poetry, I think, works, doesn't it? And, and that's when these, these poems somehow work beyond our, our cleverness or something. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think for, for Martin Luther King, the man was a poem. You know, the man was a living, breathing poem, a walking, living, breathing, walking <laughs> poem, because he managed to do that thing that, that, that poetry does, which is to put two, two very different things together all, all of the time. And um, it, it, it's astonishing when you think of the impact that Martin Luther King had right around the world, how, how his name was said in every household and how he literally became a household name, that we all felt that we shared in his identity. And only every so often, every... So often in a lifetime does somebody like that come along where you actually feel that he somehow is part of your family, mm -hmm. he speaks for you, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and when you see him in the, um, give that speech in Newcastle that day, he does it off the, off the cuff, but it's in him, like you say, I, I completely, it's, that, that poetry is right there bubbling. And these speeches are poetry because he uses metaphor, mm -hmm. he uses repetition, uh, repetition, he uses rhythm. Um, he uses assonance. He, 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 he uses every sort of trick that a poet might use um, in, in in a speech. So there's very little. I mean, you could have whole theses, and there are whole theses <laughs> on on, um, on on whether or not Martin Luther King's speeches are poetry. Um, and um, which but I think raises the bar also for the poetry that wants to follow in the spirit of protest. Going back to what some of what I hear. You're saying is that um, it's not like when you kind of sit down to write. You, 
about political subjects, you stop being a poet. In fact, you might even have to ramp it up even more just to kind of counterbalance the rhetoric that could potentially uh, uh, infect a poem. And, and, and the engine that we each probably bring to it is born out of the occasion of writing itself. And that's what I thought, thought was quite powerful when he speaks mm. to Newcastle is that there's this, um, there's this, he's going to all of his resources. He's going to mm. his resources with language, his resources as a, as a minister, um, as a rhetorician, as an orator. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful speech. But I, I truly believe that um, when, when you write poems that address topics that, um, are for the public good, it's very important that you keep your poetry hat on. Yeah, yeah. I think I think so. Would, yeah. you, would you agree? Yeah, yeah totally. I think I think there's I think every poem is this kind of marriage between the private and the public mm. in a way, and the political poetry asks even more of that, mm. doesn't it? And you've got to somehow bring yourself to it even more. And sometimes the stretch is far if it's the First World War, like with that poppy poem. <laughs> Initially, that I, I found that very intimidating uh, commission. I felt A, I was a hundred years away from it, B, do I have the right? And, and C, there was so much suffering, so much death, uh, unaccountable amounts of death, and I was thinking, you know, I, I just can't even begin. And then it was, it was only when I felt a more personal connection, I literally wrote the word poppy, and then kind of a slight anger came up in me at, mm. at this small symbol. Mm. And I allowed that anger to, to, to kind of operate, I suppose. Yeah. And, I, anger's important. Yeah. That's funny you say that because I, I see those moments and and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> where did that come from? You know, and it, and again, I I just love the generative act of writing as doing this kind of delving into, uh, into the subconscious, but tending to the surface of the poem, where the imagination, and you're you're listening to a sound, um, you know is. I think all of that is for the purpose still of seducing us because, mm. you know, you encounter someone on the street addressing these issues and you go in the other direction. Yeah. And so, um, uh, depending on the issue, of course, but, um, but something about poetry as art, as uh, protest, particularly in the States, the, the long history of it, it was, it was born out of a human, human need to to still ritualize the act of speaking. Yeah, and, and, and the human need to actually speak out. 